Our text today comes from 2 Peter. We'll be in chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and the verses are 16 through 19. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining In a dark place. Until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of the Lord. And Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And Holy Spirit, who alone searches hearts thoroughly, we pray that you would apply the word of God precisely to where it needs to be applied. We pray that you would humble the proud that you would encourage the disheartened, and that you would give great zeal to the lethargic. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, There are two equal and eternal ways of looking at this twilight world of ours. We may see it, as the twilight of evening or the twilight of morning. That is, we know the world is headed somewhere. We know the story is going somewhere. The state that it is in now, thanks be to God, will not be the final ultimate state. It is a twilight world. It is an in-between world. A world that is transitioning towards some ultimate end. So the question is not, is the world headed somewhere? The question is, where in the world is the world headed? What is the transition towards? Is it towards the evening or towards the morning? As Christians who are seeking to live lives of faithfulness and kingdom expansion, should we expect things to get darker and darker ultimately? Or should we expect them to get brighter and brighter ultimately? Which twilight is it? And how we answer that question as Christians really matters, I would argue. To use the the fancy language, whether one has an, an optimistic eschatology or a pessimistic one, eschatology meaning a vision of the final things that will come, Whether it's optimistic or pessimistic will impact our efforts, which will impact our harvest. So perhaps a word picture. So consider a farmer. It's a metaphor that Christ used often for spiritual things. Imagine this farmer rolls up with a trunk full of seed and he's looking at two different fields. and, And in both fields, it was twilight. Both fields, it's twilight. 
However, one of the fields, the sun was setting. It was the twilight of a deep and abiding darkness, certainly. But over the other, the twilight was the twilight of morning, and the sun was rising with the promise of more and more light. So my question is, which field is that farmer going to seed with more faith and more vigor and more joy and more hope? Of course, the one that has the promise of more and more light because the harvest depends on light coming. That's the miracle of photosynthesis where seeds eat light and then make stuff. Like, don't ever get over photosynthesis. The earth eats light. I don't know if you listen to Stories Are Soul Food, the uh, podcast by Andy Wilson. If you don't, you should. And he had this, like, five-minute tangent on photosynthesis, and I've never been the same. <laughs> I've, I'm serious. I've never been this. I've never eaten an orange without going, well, that's amazing. That, that's because he ate a lot of light, and now I'm eating citrus. It's amazing. Anyways. Today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. So you have Christmas tide, as we said, which is the 12 days of Christmas, where we celebrate the incarnation, the coming of Jesus to the world. And then Christmas tide culminates in the season of Epiphany, which started Friday, January 6th. We have a, a better January 6th. And Epiphany is when we celebrate the light of Christ and his gospel manifesting out to the world. So epiphany means manifestation, but etymologically it means the manifestation of light coming. So not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. The gospel is for all nations. That's what epiphany celebrates. And that was the great and repeated promise from the lips of the prophets. After a great darkness would come a great light and it would be not just Israel that would be saved, but all the nations would be saved. By the coming of Messiah. Isaiah 9, 2 through 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Oh, so just Israel then? Nope, because you multiplied the nations and increased their joy, and they rejoiced before you, as with joy at the harvest. Isaiah 60, we already heard some. Arise, shine, for light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and nations shall come to this light. And so, the coming of the Magi, which was our other reading, wasn't just because our nativity sets needed to be more interesting. It marks the start of Epiphany, where foreigners from the East are now being drawn by the light of the gospel. That brought them to the feet of Jesus Christ. That's what that's all about. That's why it's so astonishing that foreigners from the east saw the lights. Okay. So today, in light of it being Epiphany, and still the beginning of a new year, we're going to do one final non-Genesis sermon before we dive back into that study next week. And my goal for this message today is this. I want to convince you more of or reawaken you to the reality that epiphany means that this twilight world of ours is the twilight of morning. 
I want to convince you that epiphany means our eschatology, our vision of where the story is headed and the gospel is headed should be brimming with hope because light has come and it will not go out. And according to the scriptures, the the light of Christ, the light of his kingdom will grow and beam brighter in history. That the darkness we see all around us, even now, in the final analysis, will be proved to be a very small cloud, the size of a man's hand, over a rising sun in the span of history. That's true, I believe. Or to say it another way, my goal for Pilgrim Hill, through this message and through 2023, can be summarized by Paul's prayer for the church in Rome in Romans 15, 13. Paul prayed this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound with hope. I want us, as we put our hand to the plow, to abound with hope. And that word abound, parasuin, means to overflow with. Not just to have enough to get out of bed, to overflow with hope so that it quests out from you into others. And and how do we do that? According to Paul, well, well, he says it's because God has filled us with joy and peace in believing. So believe something. The Holy Spirit gives you joy and peace because you believed that thing. That's that's the logic of the text. So what does he want us to believe? Fascinatingly, he just got done running through some texts on how the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles as well. So he wants us to believe that epiphany is true, that the gospel is unstoppable. And he says, when you understand that, the the goodness of the unstoppable gospel, you will abound and overflow with hope through the Holy Spirit. And again, this is especially important for us in 2023 because the days seem dark. It'd be easy to grow pessimistic or cynical or ingrown if we get our eschatology from the newspaper rather than the scriptures, as I heard a pastor quip once. But we don't. We're Christians. And so we come to the scriptures for light, not cable news. And we let God tell us what he is doing in the world. And we do so understanding that we stand on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history that proves that epiphany is true. Okay, so that's all introduction. And now to the text. So we're, we're in 2 Peter, where Peter tells Christians that as they look to the horizon, they should see the twilight of morning. Literally could not say it more literally. The day dawning is where he lands ultimately in the text. He wanted their their ears to be silent to scoffers who did not believe that that was true. And like 2 Timothy, which we were in last week, 2 Peter is Peter's last letter before he was martyred. And And he echoes Timothy in something he says. So this is two verses before our text. Peter says this. So this is the on ramp for our text. He says, I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. 
Now, that's interesting. He could be referring to the end of John. Remember when the Lord Jesus speaks to Peter? And he says, when you're old, someone will take you where you do not want to go, perhaps. Or perhaps he had another vision. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I die, you may be able to recall these things. These are the things I want echoing in your ears. So this is significant to Peter. And then it's from there that he pushes out into our text. So again, please, please open to 2 Peter chapter 1 if you haven't done so yet, so you could follow along because it's going to require some attention today. So verse 16 again, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when Peter talks about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's important that we nail down specifically what he's talking about. Because so much flows from this. Because it's easy to think that he's just talking about the coming of Jesus generally in the incarnation when we told you that Jesus was real and stuff. Or perhaps... The final coming of Christ at the very end of the time, as we know it, we could read it like that as well. But I'm convinced that Peter is talking about something much more specific here that he's already talked to them about. And it's important for us to see this, to to grasp the full import and the full hope that he wants them to have at the end. Because his entire argument for why they should have hope in the here and now His entire argument for why they should see the dawning of the day ultimately as Christians is built upon what he says here at the beginning. So he's pouring, I'm going to argue, very specific concrete, which the Christian's eschatological optimism is built upon. Something I will note up front before you get uncomfortable, if you're not already is that faithful Christians certainly differ on their understanding of eschatology and even on what Peter is saying here. So 2 Peter is, in church history, one of the most enigmatic epistles. So I just know that I get that. Like, R.C. Sproul and John Piper and St. Augustine will all disagree with each other. So this is not like a test of orthodoxy. Just, just to be clear. So if you don't agree, that's fine. You're still a brother or a sister, but I think this will make you happier if you do agree. And I want you to see it from the text. So that's my, that's my goal here. Because it matters. It, it obviously really matters. <laughs> it's the word of God. So what does Peter mean then when he says, the coming in power of our Lord Jesus Christ? What, what comes into your mind when Peter says those words? Well, I'm convinced he's referring specifically to Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. And this matters because this then was the official changing of the age from the old covenant era to the new covenant era. The destruction of Jerusalem was with 40 years of of transition from Pentecost to destruction of Jerusalem. So old covenant era Old Testament, then Pentecost, 40 years of transition, destruction of Jerusalem, New Testament, or excuse me, New Covenant 
era. That event was both the end of a day and the dawning of a new day. If you were with us last year when we went through R.C. Sproul's The Last Days According to Jesus, then this won't sound new to you. You'll, you'll perhaps remember that this is called the preterist perspective. And, and all that means is that whenever the New Testament talks about an imminent coming of judgment and wrath, it's typically talking about 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. That that is a shadow that is cast over much of the New Testament. And while we don't have space to do a thorough unpacking of this here, of course, I want to take just a few minutes to back this up biblically. And I bring all this up because it's not merely theological nerding out. How you understand what Peter is talking about here, about Christ's coming, will determine how you view the twilight of this world. Again, that's the whole point of what he's saying, which we'll get to. So a quick defense of this perspective here. I'm going to ask you again to to follow me closely because this will require some some focus and some attention. But again, I think it'll be profitable. So why do I see this like this? Well, first, Peter is speaking to his readers as if this coming and power of Jesus is something they should expect to see in their lifetime. He's saying it as if, as if it's something that they will see in their lifetime. The, the whole thrust of these verses culminates in the hope of the day dawning afterwards that they should expect to see in their lifetime. Furthermore, Peter says that this coming of the Lord was something that he has already made known to them, where he's referring to 1 Peter, which makes us ask, well, what did he talk about there then that will help us understand this. Does that, that make sense? So just one example. Where did he reference this in 1 Peter? He referenced it many places. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that language of the day of visitation, or the day of the Lord, is Old Testament code for for the coming judgment on a nation. And again, Peter is saying, when they see your good deeds on the day of visitation, they'll glorify God. Isaiah 10.3, what will you do on the day of visitation? To whom will you flee? And this is what Jesus had warned Jerusalem about precisely. So Peter had already told them of this coming of the Lord, But people were taunting them because nothing had changed yet. And it had been like 30 years. And so they're saying, right, okay, big whoop, this big judgment that Jesus predicted and that you have told us about. Here in the world, everything's going on like it's always gone on. Christians, you're so not progressive. You're lame. Just look. I mean, Nero's doing his own thing. Where's this Jesus coming in judgment? So that's, that's who he's writing to, Christians who are made to feel stupid and faithless because he's right. It hasn't, nothing's changed yet. It was supposed to be a big deal. So first he speaks of Christ's coming as something they should expect to see. And 70 AD was just a few layers later, so it did come. Next, Peter, and again, follow me closely here. 
because this is a little technical, but it is profound. Peter immediately connects what he just said about Jesus' power and coming to the Mount of Transfiguration in the next verse to buttress his point. So he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard that very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So why does he do this? How does Christ's power and coming have anything to do with the Mount of Transfiguration? Because Peter thinks he's making a pretty profound point here. Well, we can understand better when we can consider something Jesus said right before the Mount of Transfiguration in the scriptures. So this is Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And then six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration where the veil is pulled back momentarily, where they see his majesty and glory for just a moment, which was, according to Peter here, a sort of trailer that confirmed the main event that was about to come. And we know the Mount of Transfiguration itself was not what Jesus was referring to. Some people will say, well, he was talking about the Mount of Transfiguration when he said some will not taste death because he just took them then a week later to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, that's that's how you reconcile that. Um, That's what I used to think. Uh, I don't anymore. And the reason is, among other things, something that Jesus says in Matthew 26 when he's on trial before the council. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So according to Jesus here, His coming in power is something the Jewish leaders would see, and they would, in the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed. So again, Peter's point. He told them Christ was coming in power and glory, and though it's not happened yet, he wants them to be certain it's not a myth, because I was there, I heard it, I saw it. He saw the terrifying majesty of Christ and he he heard the voice of God come down from heaven to confirm Jesus' identity as the beloved son, the kingly Messiah. And then Peter says, so now we're in verse 19, if you're following along, and he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So he wants them to pay attention to this prophetic word, which has been, he thinks now, clearly more fully confirmed. And to pay attention to something, you have to know what he's talking about. That's, that's why we're doing this. So we can pay attention, because we want the hope that he has at the end. 
So what prophetic word is Peter referring to based on everything he just said? Well, the standard answer is that Christ was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, which of course is true, yet in context, Peter has just recounted this amazing moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, but I would argue he recounted it in a way that hyperlinks directly back to Psalm 2. Or if you overlay Psalm 2 on the way he described it, he is wanting you to pay attention. A psalm that we love to sing. And it's a messianic prophecy about Christ establishing his rule as the king of the world and subduing those who will not kiss the sun. So with these Second Peter verses ringing in your ears, I want you to listen to Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, holy mountain, you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. Namely, those who will not submit. So to me, it seems undeniable that Peter is drawing our attention to Psalm 2, which was reenacted on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it is the clearest picture of the Son of God. So Psalm 2 and all the Psalms is the clearest picture of the Son of God, the Lord's Messiah, being given all authority, including the authority to judge the nations that set themselves against him which was seen dramatically in the judgment on Jerusalem. And so we can understand why this is the prophetic word, which Peter's readers would do well to pay attention to as a lamp in a dark place. Because things were already very hard for them, and they were about to get worse. It's going to be a dark place for several years, increased persecution, increased martyrdom, all culminating in the horrific siege on Jerusalem. And by that point, it had been nearly 40 years. One generation, as Jesus said, will not pass away since he ascended back to the Father. So what in the world is happening? We thought after his ascension of the increase of his rule and government and peace, there would be no end. So why are things still getting darker? And this is the whole reason Peter was writing to them. That this was no myth. Christ will come in power and glory before some of them taste death within that generation, just like Jesus said. And so Peter says, hold fast. Trust me, it's true. I've seen it. Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Psalm 2 Messiah. I saw his majesty. I heard the Father confirm it. So hold fast to that prophetic word about who Christ is and what he's doing. But then Peter says something in verse 19 that is a culminating point that is hugely significant for us as Christians on this side of 70 AD, which fills us with incredible hope Hope both in the life to come and hope for the work of our hands in 2023. Peter then says, 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And here he is talking about that final transition from the old covenant aeon to the new covenant aeon. The changing of the guard from the old to the new now. And Peter, as he paints the picture for these embattled Christians, he tells them to look at the horizon and see a sort of twilight. See a light shrouded in darkness, but understand it is the twilight of morning, no matter how dark it seems in the moment, because the day is dawning. The era of Christ's reign is coming. Epiphany is coming. The light of Christ going out into all the world is coming and happening in real time. And when that happens, finally, Peter says, the morning star will also rise in your hearts as you see the day dawn. Perhaps we could think of that as the internal response to that objective reality that they see. And friends, this is why we, of all Christians throughout church history, should take hold of Paul's prayer from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you will abound in hope because we aren't simply looking for the day to dawn. We are, we are waiting for epiphany. We aren't waiting for epiphany to be proven. We are living in the dawn, and we are living proof that epiphany is true. As us Tennessee Gentiles, 2,000 years later, I don't know how many miles, 10,000 miles from where Peter wrote this, is reading what Peter wrote, worshiping Jesus Christ, and you're going to tell me the kingdom is not going to expand. Oh, friends, we should have so much hope. Yes, of course, of course, the world has all sorts of issues. Of course, we long for the final resurrection when the kingdom will be consummated and when death will be no more and when suffering will be ceased. But in God's gracious providence, we live in the new covenant era and make no mistake, Christ is reigning. The witch's spell has been broken. The flowers are peeking through the snow that is melting. And Aslan is on the move in 2023. I know it. And even if it doesn't get any brighter in our lifetime, because things are crazy out there, it's only because a small cloud went over the sun rising on its ascent up. It's unstoppable ascent up. And so we keep working with hope because we're going to have a lot of kids and they're going to carry it forward. Because if we're honest, even we can be tempted, like Peter's audience towards unbelief or discouragement. But again, this is only possible if we forget the last 2,000 years of church history, where the church has grown and expanded and thrived time and time again against great odds, against impossible odds. Why? Because Peter was right. And something Zach prayed in our men's group a couple weeks ago has just struck me. He said something to the effect of, and Lord, thank you that we are church history right now. That's an amazing thought. 2,000 years of church history, and we're church history right now. 
I mean, that will make you feel the good burden of what we have to be about. All nations will come to him finally. Christ is reigning. His gospel is unstoppable. But Pilgrim Hill, remember how he told us his kingdom grows. He told us how his kingdom grows. He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, and it is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests and its branches. Jesus told us. You're amazed that Goodlessville has not entirely bent the knee to Jesus Christ yet because we've existed for a year and a half? Come on. He told us how the kingdom expands. It grows slowly, indomitably, slowly, incrementally. So Pilgrim Hill, Let us sow 10,000 tiny seeds of acts of faithfulness in 2023. The seed of another faithful lecture at your school. The seed of another time of family worship. The seed of another bedtime prayer. The seed of starting a Christian business on Main Street. The seed of another hymn sung at a retirement home. The seed of another courageous conversation with an unbelieving friend. The seed of repentance toward your wife when you were unloving. And the seed of repentance toward your husband when you were disrespectful. And the seed of memorizing a weekly Bible verse. And the seed of honoring your elderly parents with care and prayer. And then the weekly collective seating we do as we come to worship the triune God in spirit and in truth. Let us sow 10,000 mustard seeds in our lifetime with faith and hope because epiphany is true. The day has dawned. The morning star has arisen. The kingdom photosynthesis will happen because Christ is shining upon us. And the darkness of our day is but a fleeting cloud on the horizon as the gospel quests further up and further in. It cannot be otherwise. John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Proverbs four eighteen. Our memory verse. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. Our Lord and our God, We thank you for the glorious reign of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace that was poured out over the world when he came. We thank you for how powerful the gospel is that it would overcome wicked hearts like, like ours and awaken us to the glory of the reign of Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that the enemy wants us to be people marked by unbelief, people marked by cynicism. And so I pray, Lord, that Pilgrim Hill would not be unaware of his tactics, but we would be people of an indomitable faith, sowing seeds every day by faith that we know in 200 years will have glorious, glorious fruits. For your glory, for our joy, and for the salvation of Goodlitzville and our grandchildren. And now we would pray the way our Lord.